0: This episode is brought to you by the Metasearch Institute. What happens when patients cases become too complex to solve in a typical 30 minute visit? Well, you've all had those super thick, super deep patient histories. Nobody's looked at in a long time and gone back through. Well, I'll tell you what happens is those patients bounce around from doc to doc without getting any answers or making any progress. These patients are trapped and lost in a maze. Well, Metasearch is here for those doctors and for those patients. Their motto is, we solve the unsolvable. Their process is rather simple. Dr. Trent Talbot, the founder, assigns a team of medical detectives, typically three MDs and one PhD, to each case. They research the latest breakthroughs and clinical trials, and they elicit the opinions of 10 to 15 world-leading experts per case. They purposefully seek out experts who will come at each case from a different perspective. The Bayesian Method. Altogether, they will put in over 250 MD hours for every case. That means 500 times the amount of brain power that a typical doctor can afford to offer. Nobody can do what Metasearch does. Call 832-968-6667. That's 832-968-6667 to be in touch. You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with us, Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. 2020 has been epic for primary care news. Forget the C-19 decimating the independent fee-for-service primary care model. They never got a $175 billion grant, a free ride of the century from Congress, like the hospitals. So, not all primary care was decimated. Some models are thriving. We're going to talk to one of those today. Let me tell you about Oak Street Health and One Medical. They are both brand-newly listed public companies that are in primary care. One is in the value-based care for seniors model, and the other is more of a direct care and fee-for-service hybrid serving Silicon Valley clients like Google. So Wall Street is now fully woke to a $348 billion market opportunity, although we don't like to think of it that way, called primary care. And that alone is a sea change because there's lots of focus on what's going on on Wall Street for this. And Walmart has just announced a Plan B a couple of days ago to their new 10,000-square-foot dental, vision, hearing, counseling, and social workers offering at an in-store primary care clinic, a model that's launched in Dallas, Georgia, in January. Walmart will now be piloting five senior-focused primary care clinics with Oak Street, before mentioned, in Dallas, Texas. And remember, they serve 2 million customers every day, so we got to watch Walmart Health. And our guest today announced in July a billion dollar primary care deal with Walgreens. More on that in a minute. So that is all 2020 news. It's been a busy year forgetting a pandemic as if it's side news. Also to add to the story is the London-based Babylon Health has now raised a billion five for virtual primary care model and is the primary healthcare system for Rwanda, a virtual care, I don't know if I agree with that, but that's what Rwanda wanted. And there are dozens of virtual care models growing like crazy and raising tons of Silicon Valley cash, like 98.6, a former guest of ours, Brad Younggren and crossover health, which is Scott Shreve. They serve a million virtually also when they purchase Sherpa. And they also offer free on-site direct primary care for the employees. And they also give Cairo counseling and acupuncture for the likes of LinkedIn, square and visa acupuncture. Hey, the founder is a Cali-based doc who's a surfer. What do you want? Okay, so is primary care going crazy with all of this corporate movement? Is this a good thing or not? Absolutely. Why do I say that? Because the big hospitals and the big carriers alike are furiously buying, air quotes for no dollars, the 30% of independent primary care clinics left as this crisis forces over 16,000 closed doctor offices just in the last couple of months, which represents maybe 40 million untended patients. We don't know how many of those 16,000 are PCPs or not, but that's 40 million untended patients if they're all PCPs. So independent fee-for-service now is brought to its knees, but most hospitals, the buyers, along with these big insurers are volume dependent. Transaction care is the flavor of fee-for-service that they focus on. Then immediately when they buy a practice, PCP groups price out at two to four times what they were charging the day before they were bought by the hospital with measurably more burnout, more medical errors. We now know that is the third leading cause of death after heart disease and cancer. Outcomes also drop, 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 drop. So why do bigs like Walmart and Walgreens, et cetera, why are they a breath of fresh air? Well, Simply, we celebrate any models where the costs drop and the patients win. Where outcomes improve, that's the triple aim. And you're not supposed to be able to get any two out of three of those or three out of three of those at the same time, yet they do in this model, especially with the doctor we're speaking with today and direct primary care. And let's throw in on top of the triple aim. Now, remember, we talked about cost dropping, patients winning, outcomes improving. What if we have happy doctors to throw in the mix? Now we've got a quadruple aim all being accomplished again with these new models. And what if we throw in, are the employers or the governments who are writing the checks winning the cost war? And now we're at quintuple lane. So we're way past triple lane, which is supposed to be impossible a couple of years ago because of these new models that are out there. This is a future where everybody wins. It's not system owned factory medicine and it's not transaction care. That model will die of its own weight it's the modern equivalent today working in a hospital of working in a coal mine if you're a PCP, except instead of getting black lung, you get white lung. These doctors and the providers that work with them are going to flee and are fleeing the big systems. Our guest today I've known for 40 years when we attended UT Austin together. So for those of you who are Aggies, you can turn it off now. But Clive Fields has been on quite a remarkable journey. He's the chief medical officer and co-founder of Village MD, which in 1991 started when he joined his wonderful father, Harold, at Village Family Practices, it was known then. Dr. Field Sr. was trained in Scotland and practiced in a, as a family physician in Toronto, so two single-payer systems informed him how to practice medicine. And that history is important in this introduction because when Clive joined the practice at a Baylor medical residency, the father and the son grew it to 13 PCPs, with an early adoption pioneering, really, of what we now call value-based care, but then it was patient-centered medical home model. And If you don't know what that means, it's a lot of words. A patient-centered medical home is a fancy way of saying the care doesn't stop at the doorstep of the clinic. Instead, it's brought into the home in the workplace, in the wild, we'll call it, out of the nest, which we'll call the doctor's office, with care teams and ever-evolving technology to support particularly older and more chronic conditions. So the single pair models from Canada and Scotland inform Dr. Fields and Clive how to provide what's known as advanced care to these new Texans that were figuring something out for the first time and seeing something for the first time in family practice, a best practice that actually works. And you can actually get paid less money for procedures and testing volume and more money for better outcomes when you go to this new model. So that's the beauty of it. So Clive has beautifully scaled this new model that's not so new anymore into what was a mega group. And then in the last seven years, he's now created 500,000 patients and 3000 doctors practicing in 10 states these past seven years. And after this announcement, this thing is going to take off in July because Walgreens has invested in convertible debt, equity, and hopefully a lot of free rent at five to 700 locations, a billion dollars in a minority stake for Village MD. And they're now gonna leave it to the pros to run their clinics, which they failed at miserably by themselves. So, they will be housing, as I said, five to 700 stores over the next five years. And these are the best retail corners in America, bar none. It's a smart deal. So, Clive is won the Physician Executive of the Year by the AAFP, which is the American Academy of Family Practice. He's consistently named one of Houston's top doctors in all the right magazines. Modern Healthcare just named him last year one of the 50 most influential clinical executives in America. But that's not all, he's a triple threat. So he's an executive, he's a builder, he's also a doctor seeing patients, and he teaches family medicine at his, where he did his residency at Baylor Medicine and the University of Texas at Houston. So uh, Clive, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, uh, thank you very much for the, the very complimentary introduction.
0: Well, I mean, you, you have pioneered something that a lot of people can learn from, and that's what this show is all about, is taking best practices and putting it out there. So let's talk for a second about I have three big concerns for value-based care that I wanna to get to before the end of the show that I'm concerned about. And there's nobody better than you to address these three concerns I have. But let's, let's talk about the journey that informed you to um, expand your model in such a big way in the last
1: seven years. No, no, happy to. So you touched on on a couple of really key elements early on in my career, and that was the opportunity to, to work with my father starting in 1991. His experience in the two national healthcare systems really informed the way that I practice and the way that many of the young doctors who joined us practice for really the first decade of, of my career. And what that really meant was that we practiced what, what we now call advanced primary care or we call primary care center medical homes but what it really was was just really good comprehensive primary care where you went to a doctor and you had acne you didn't need to go to see a dermatologist you went to the doctor you have back pain you don't need to go see an, an orthopedist and we learned to practice that way and really the late 1990s with medicare plus choice opportunity from cms we started to see data and data was not available prior to that on on an individual practice. Actually, the only data you had was the number of patients that you saw that day, and and that's that's who won, whoever saw the most number of patients. What we realized when we saw that data um, was that there was something we were doing different, and it didn't have to be a lot different, just a little different than our peers to generate a different result we were able to then move into what we now call Medicare Advantage and start to see actually prospective payment and payment based on outcomes not just on the transactions of our fee-for-service our fee-for-service model got to around um, 2010 and we thought we were a pretty big deal here in Houston we were 13 docs in two locations and the only person who thought we were a big deal turned out to be us that without the kind of size and scale and technology and capital um, an ability to negotiate appropriate payer contracts, that we were likely going to be just another small group or medium-sized group in Houston that, that had no legacy and lived no greater than the or no longer than the doctors' um, individual careers. So took the opportunity to, to take what we had learned and, and work with two of my partners, Barry and Paul Martino, and founded Village MD. And we th- we founded the company with the sole purpose of helping independent physicians succeed. In the transition from fee for service to value based care, recognizing that value based care is not a hundred percent of somebody's business, and that you still need to operate in both worlds and will for a period of time. And and Ron, we've been we've been blessed. Um, we have now grown to uh, to nine states, and we're working with around almost three thousand physicians.
0: What is the reason people tell you no, Clive? It seems like such a nice offer to be surrounded by technology and virtual CFO, virtual CMO, virtual fill-in-the-blank C-level, you're giving them a, a, a wide variety of services. Are they thinking that they're gonna make less money? Are they afraid to take the leap out of the uh, safe, comfort? well, let's not, let's not call it a comfortable world, but the safe world they knew before?
1: Yeah, I think there's really two big areas we run into. We run into doctors who truly don't believe that value-based care is a movement that, that will continue to grow in this country. And we run into doctors and, and no disrespect who believe that they can do what we do by themselves. And so that slows down the sales cycle in, in, in both areas. Um, we are thrilled to see doctors actually band together with like-minded colleagues and do it themselves. But many just don't have an idea about the amount of capital and, and, and executive experience and how that needs to be attracted to actually build a model um, like ours or like the two that you just referenced um, who've recently gone public, um, whether it was Oak or um, or One Medical. So that's um, that's probably the two reasons people don't join us. Um it used to be that a lot of docs joined hospitals because they believed that would be the last employer of their life. And unfortunately, um, COVID has exposed that, that many of those employers were far more financially fragile than the physicians may have thought. And we're seeing physicians now um, being let go, um, being furloughed, um, having salaries cut in some of the largest integrated systems in the country because of the the financial and and clinical ramifications of of the pandemic
0: we're currently living through. It's It's just infuriating to see layoffs and furloughs of hospitals that got free federal money. We don't need to go go there, but it's just uh, they got money to actually keep people employed, and they all had reserves enough to cover these uh, losses, supposed losses. The four biggest public hospitals all reported recently their second quarter. They did fine without these monies coming in. It was ridiculous, so it's just infuriating that they're furloughing good people that are actually paying the tax bill to fund their uh, free ride.
1: Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. Anytime that you limit access or decrease access to primary care, it's ultimately bad for the communities that those doctors work in because it drives up ER utilization. It drives up inappropriate hospitalizations and specialty work and ultimately without any significant improvement in overall
0: quality. I'm not understanding the hospitalist movement was actually born in Texas. And I'm not understanding how that is primary care that you go to see a doctor for episodic care. Mm You go to see them for uh, transactionally care so by its very nature, and suddenly that's primary care. That's nothing close to what you and your father started, and what you're currently uh, rolling out and across the country.
1: No, we we believe that primary care doctors, and that would be defined as doctors who can provide comprehensive, um, continuous, um, and coordinated care, really meets the definition of a primary care doctor. So, seeing a, a physician or seeing a patient, excuse me, in a single site. Um, without the ability to, um, to see them through the entire continuum of their disease or just their life um, is not by my definition of primary care, so I could not agree with you more in that area.
0: Okay, we're on the same page. Let's talk for a second about outcomes. Now, this gets into the gripe area as long as we're talking about what are some concerns I think primary care doctors have about the leap, The first gripe I've heard from primary care physicians that are in the old universe is that the value-based care model is producing the same costs as the fee-for-service model, that it's supposed to be less transactions, less volume, less factory medicine-ish, but it's actually, the costs are almost to the penny the same dollars. Am I off on that?
1: Yeah, that the data just does not support that. If you look at some of the data from CMS on on the next-gen ACOs that are reporting literally, or have reported their 2019 data, just in the last couple of weeks, there's a consistent reduction in the total cost of care. There's a shift in care from inpatient and specialty care to outpatient and community care. We're actually seeing the total healthcare dollar of what primary care doctors are receiving around 6% go up almost to 8 or 9%, which doesn't sound like a lot. But that's a 50% change in the total spend going to primary care or community resources. So. No, what we're seeing is, is, and what we see certainly within Village, is that a clinical model, not an economic model, but a clinical model, that's used to support appropriate utilization, continuously returns um, the appropriate economic results, which are lower total cost of care and higher overall quality for the populations being served.
0: Okay, so that's not the biggest gripe. I'm gonna, I'm gonna escalate these. The second gripe is that. Um, are you managing or are you reversing chronic conditions like diabetes and hypertension? Managing is one thing, but actually turning it around and improving the lives is a whole other matter where they're getting off their insulin and getting off their meds.
1: Yeah, so I, I think it, right now all we do is actually monitor or in our system currently monitors chronic disease. So moving from monitoring to managing to reversing is a continuum that takes years and years. But we've certainly, at least at Village, moved from, yes, documenting diabetes to actually addressing ways to decrease the, the, the exacerbation of diseases like diabetes, heart failure, and COPD. I, I'm sure your audience knows that COPD and CHF, account, but patients with COPD and CHF account for over 50% of the total Medicare spend. Doesn't mean that spend is 100% tied to those diseases, but it's tied to patients who have those diseases. So it's not hard to risk stratify and identify patients where with education, team-based care, with care that reaches outside of the exam room, with patient engagement and education, that you can decrease some of the exacerbations. Would we love to reverse congestive heart failure and COPD? Absolutely. Do we see it with aggressive lifestyle interventions and diabetes? Yes. But many of these diseases are just by nature progressive. And our goal is to really decrease the exacerbations and the morbidity associated with those exacerbations over the course of a patient's life.
0: How far are we away, if you had to guess, from a technology solution that allows for the actual reversal?
1: No, it, it's, it, there are some things that will never be reversed. Congestive heart failure, by definition, um, can be controlled, but it is a progressive disease. Type 1 diabetes is not reversible or, or not currently today. Type 2 diabetes is probably the one that jumps out at me as, as the one that people talk about in terms of reversal. And we've seen a number of different technology platforms um, that, with aggressive lifestyle management, usually moving to plant-based diets um, you can see reversal of, um, of, of diabetes. Some of the work done at Baylor about a decade before me um, actually showed reversal of, of heart disease, actually reversal of heart disease and lifespan consistent with cardiac interventions when patients instituted aggressive lifestyle, diet and exercise changes. So is there a technology solution? Probably not. Is there a lifestyle solution? The same way that lifestyle is driving the progression of chronic disease, in many cases, it can certainly decrease that progression, and in some even reverse the disease process.
0: All right. Well, I had on my show, Jean Teschler, the CEO of a company called Wellsmith out of Austin. And I think what you just said might be um, just a little bit off. She has now reversed 30% of their cohort in diabetes with uh, four different clinical trials, and I'll send you the show link so you can listen to it yourself in here.
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I, I mean, and and I'm I'm assuming that there is a significant lifestyle component to that reversal. Um,
0: yes, uh, surprisingly little, but yes. Um, the third gripe that I hear about value-based care and this one, I don't know, Clivas, there's an answer for this one, but it's, we have a situation where the big systems are essentially buying up all of the practices that they can get their hands on. And they're doing it for essentially no cost. There's not a... Uh, two times EBITDA or three times EBITDA or even a five times EBITDA that maybe once was, it's now, we'll take over your pain and make it go away. And it's, of course, they're upping the prices the next day, as I said in the opening. I'm concerned that value-based care is a gigantic bow and they're going to continue to capitate you guys down to zero. They haven't the last 30 years, but I think they're going to capitate you down to zero like they did to the MRIs, make them unaffordable for anybody but big systems. That's my concern is that You may have, you know, this many doctors today and twice that next year and five times that next year, but at some point they'll capitate you down to where it's not profitable. And then the bigs will pick you up for a song and a dance. I'm concerned about that.
1: I think that's a reasonable concern. I mean, one of the foundations at Village is the move to a prospective payment model. And that prospective payment model is not limited to just primary care services, but to the total cost of care. So for a primary care doctor to actually economically be remain solvent in this kind of society that, and and with the costs associated with primary care, the only way to actually do that is have access to what we call the total cost of care or global capitation. The idea of me arguing with Blue Cross or Aetna next year about whether an intermediate office visit should be paid at $61 or $62 is already a losing argument before it even starts because it diminishes the value that a primary care doctor can bring to the patients they take care of. So in our model, what we wanna see is we wanna see global capitation coming through an attributed patient panel to a primary care group, effectively a primary care group that's willing to take risk. Then that primary care group can go out and contract with specialists and hospitals, ancillaries, find the best quality at the lowest possible cost, effectively using the clout of that attributed panel in a way that no individual patient can but doing it in a way that actually lowers the total cost of care as opposed to increasing the total cost of care, which is when we see when there are very, very few providers in any given city.
0: But that's that's all very lovely, and, and I love what I heard just now. But you've got basically on your side our former guest Tom Banning and the others like him that are banded together, and the hospitals have the largest lobby in America. And when you throw medical devices and others in there, we're talking about a half a billion of money that's in the light and another half a billion of dark money that is not reported to the FEC. How in the world are they not going to legislate you out of existence so that they can just snap you up? That's, that's, you don't have the lobbying power
1: they have. Yeah, I I, I couldn't agree with you more and we'll never have the lobbying power. And I may be naive in thinking that ultimately doing the right thing leads people to the top. to my grave, I believe that what we're doing is ultimately the right thing. And when people step back and think about healthcare as a unique type of service, completely different than your TV provider, your internet provider, or the car that you drive, that we should be focused on delivering the highest quality care at the lowest total cost. If you think about the Medicaid budget in 50 states, there's 50 states that are on a one-way path to bankruptcy because their Medicaid budget ultimately will exceed their total revenue. There won't be money left for and schools, for roads, for, 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 for police departments, and for fire. As that starts to happen, even with the kind of clout that certain constituents can bring to bear, I honestly believe that people in power will start to make the right decisions because they'll have to make the right decisions.
0: Then no question about that. I'm excited to ask you a few questions that uh, Lloyd Van Winkle, our mutual friend, told me to ask you. He is um, on the national board of the AAFP I mentioned earlier and he is concerned that family practice is only able to recruit a tiny minority of the physicians that are getting out of the residencies. What can we do to bump up the salaries, income, et cetera, so that they're not having to work 10 more extra years to pay off that same debt that the
1: uh, specialists are paying off earlier? Yeah, so, so there, there's, a complete, um, there's a complete failure of graduate medical education as it applies to, to residencies right now. Um, teaching hospitals are being paid to quote produce doctors that are necessary to meet the needs of the communities they serve but instead they're actually producing doctors that are necessary to fill the beds in the operating rooms that they have built and so what we need to first see is a complete change in gme funding that actually focuses on what it was meant to focus on which is meeting the needs of the communities that they serve if we do that then we'll start to actually see family practice and internal medicine rise in the recognition scale inside the academic centers where most doctors are trained, which is really the second problem. The idea that um, race car drivers should train pilots and then tell pilots that they should be race car drivers, this doesn't inherently make any sense. And it doesn't make sense for primary care doctors who work in the communities to actually be trained by specialists who work in the medical centers. If we can actually change those two things, first being funding, then being the site of training, I think we can start to attract doctors or attract students who ultimately, or who initially went to medical school to be a doctor that looked a lot like a family doctor. They didn't go, no one goes to medical school, I I don't believe to be a retinal surgeon. It's just not something that, that kind of you wake up every day when you're 16 and strive to do. So a change in funding, a change in location of training will ultimately lead to a different type of recognition. And I believe a different type of compensation as we move to at risk globally capped populations. The interesting thing that primary care has, which no other specialty has, is the ability to quote attribute patients to a physician. So nobody is attributed to a neurosurgeon or attributed to a nephrologist or attributed to an orthopedist because they can't impact the total cost of care or their total healthcare needs. So the ability to tie patients to doctors to measure both quality, cost, patient, and physician experience can only be done through a primary care doctor. I think that's actually why you're seeing the big feeding frenzy for the, the, the acquisition of primary care by other types of institutions. So I actually think that there's, uh, I would challenge Lloyd and I would say that there's been trouble in primary care in the past. Many people think there's trouble today. but I actually believe there's a far brighter future than, than many recognize, and and uh, and I, I'm hoping I, I practice long enough to see that day come to fruition.
0: Well, what you said earlier about VBC turning salaries into a little bit more attractive uh, offers you're able, able to make these young residents, that might be the solution. I'm not sure you lobbying or hoping and praying that you're going to beat the hospital lobby to uh, change GME funding is ever going to happen. Those guys have such tight control over the Walls of Congress and state, local, federal—they're—they're just—they just got it. They've got uh, so many lobbyists. There's something like six to seven lobbyists for every legislators in Washington that are federally registered with these healthcare giant concerns. So it's gonna—if it came through market forces like you're talking about, there's your answer. I'm concerned that uh, hoping for a vote or a regulator to uh, change some rule is never gonna happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, Ron, the only person who's more powerful than that that provides care is the person who pays for care. So ultimately, when employers and governments and 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 the federal government and state agencies recognize that they can no longer pay for the system that providers have built, I think we'll see a sea shift in the way that providers are actually paid and treated.
0: Well, this is very exciting. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing my first clinic. You've already expanded into, I think, five here in Houston on a pilot basis, right?
1: we have, we actually opened up another five since then. So there's uh, 10 of our village medical co-located at Walgreens currently, um, currently operating in Houston.
0: Fantastic. Well, this is um, such a better model for Walgreens than them trying to do it in the back of the store themselves. This makes eminent sense to partner with the likes of you. So very excited for you and for them and what great positioning you have. There's no better retail location than Walgreens anywhere in America.
1: Now we're excited to have them as as a partner, we're excited for a lot of reasons, but most importantly we're excited about the integration of pharmacy services into the management of our patients with chronic disease. Our data continually shows that that type of team-based approach drives the best possible results and access to their professionals is um, high on the list of why we actually affiliated with Walgreens.
0: We are going to do a future show about the role of the pharmacist in primary care because they have been so overlooked for so long as a critical part of the team, they've just become bean counters and they're hate their jobs and none of them are real satisfied working for these uh, giant institutions. But now if they can collaborate with the likes of you and your team, what a sea change that is for them.
1: Yeah, we are excited about, uh, about being part of that ride.
0: Yeah. Very good. Clive. I always ask at the end of every show, how people can reach you or village indeed, if they want to know more and they want to join your forces and, uh, we'll go, we'll go there first.
1: No, absolutely. So you can certainly find information on us at villagemd.com or I can be reached at cfields at villagemd.com.
0: Great. And then the second question is if you could fly a banner over America announcing anything you want, what would that
1: banner say? Oh gosh, it would be uh, to to the 50 million Americans that don't have a primary care relationship. It would be to get one. It's good for you. It's good for your family. It's good for your health.
0: Very good. Thank you, Clive. And we'll do this again. I can't wait to watch your progress. Thank you, Ron. So welcome to Just a Hospital Minute. We are adding these segments for one minute at the end of every show to tell you some of the games that hospitals play. If your doctor comes in and visits, or any doctor comes in and visits while you're in the hospital bed, if they sit down, they'll be remembered. If they stand up and leave, they're often not remembered, so they're often instructed. You're going to bill if you're sit or stand, but go ahead and sit down. It's better bedside manner. So. This is just another hospital minute. Thanks again to our sponsor, the MediSearch Institute. I want to read you a note a CEO friend of mine sent me who used them for a rare childhood disease her daughter had. Dr. Talbot's research was thorough. He provided clear paths of treatment and he gave me access to the best physicians. I'm so grateful for his work. That's the MediSearch Institute. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up. There's two things you can do for us. One, Go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.